Okay, let's just pray and ask God to help us understand his word together. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you because you are a God who invites us to do that. To come before you and to thank you for who you are and the things you have done. The ways in which you have demonstrated your character and your mercy to people like us. And Lord, we pray tonight, Lord, that as we look at your word together now, and as we head into a time of remembering the death of your son for us, also, Lord, that you would lead us to praise you and to rejoice in just the astonishing God of grace that you are. Lord, help us to understand, in some ways, this baffling incident in the life of Abraham. Help us to see what it has to say to us as we um, seek to trust you today. And Lord, refresh us, we ask, from this time. Refresh us by just spending time gazing on you. The one praiseworthy person in the whole of your creation. So Lord, do speak to us now, we pray. And change us as a result of speaking. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Well, you can't really begin a sermon at the moment without some reference to the general election. So here's mine. Get it over with um, very quickly. I was listening to Radio 4 um, on Wednesday night while cooking the dinner. Um, And from that you can learn that I'm madly intellectual because I listen to Radio 4. And I'm also a new man because I cook for my family sometimes. Maybe once a week. But, um, but I was listening to Radio 4 and Nick Clegg, leader of the Liberal Democrats, was being interviewed um, by Eddie Mayer. And with his opening question, the interviewer really threw Mr. Clegg. He said, you know, tonight we're interviewing um, leader of the Liberal Democrats, Nick Clegg. Mr. Clegg, why aren't you a believer? Sort of silence, in a way. And, and again... Just Mr. Clegg sort of began to sort of really squirm at that question. You may know that when he became leader of Liberal Democrats, he, he came out quite, quite openly and said he's an atheist. Um, and since then, he sort of backpedaled a bit from that because he knows that's not always a great selling point to people. But, um, but why aren't you a believer? It was a really tough question for, for Nick Clegg to answer. And he, again, as I say, ummed and a bit. Um, and he sort of eventually said, well, I'd like to have faith. I admire people who have faith. And one day maybe I will have faith. But he, you could just tell he was desperate for the conversation to move on. And of course, I think mean, we have to admit the question was a bit unfair. Um, British politicians are not designed or prepared to answer questions about their religious beliefs. It just doesn't happen much here. So it was deliberately, I think, there to throw him. But again, listening to Nick Clegg talk about faith, I was just again struck by how different our society's understanding of faith is to how the Bible presents faith. Because again, in our culture today, faith is generally seen as a feeling or a mindset that that some people have, but others just don't have. Sort of a a desire to believe certain things without any evidence for them, because it's nice to believe them. Whereas I think last week, Daniel, um, when he was preaching, gave us a really helpful and more biblical definition of faith as part of this series in the life of Abraham. That faith in the Bible is us taking God at his word. 
faith is us taking God at his word. Faith's not primarily about us or about a feeling we have. It's rooted, it hinges on the character of God. And if we can indeed trust what he says. And that immediately sort of begs that question, why should we trust the word of God? Again, the election, the question at the front of it really is, can we trust these leaders? Why should we trust what they say? And it's a question we should ask about the God of the Bible as well. It's a question we're going to see. God invites Abram to ask. And he invites us to ask as well. Why should we trust what God says? Genesis 15, that John just read to us, it's a decisive moment in the relationship between Abram and the God who had called him out of his own country to follow him into the land God would show him. It's a decisive moment in the big story of the Bible as well. Verse 6 um, in chapter 15, it's one of the most important Old Testament verses quoted in the New Testament. Both the Apostle Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, quote that verse at sort of key moments in the, in the heart of their letters. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And it's in this chapter that Abram, you can say, seems to come to sort of a settled conviction that he really can trust the word of God. To the point where some commentators almost look at Genesis 15 as sort of Abraham's conversion experience. He has followed God before now. But verse 6, something decisive seems to happen in Abram's relationship with God. And we want to sort of look a bit at at sort of what Abraham learns about God from this encounter and why he responds by decisively placing his trust in God. Now last week, um, Daniel um, looked at us, um, we looked at Daniel with chapter 13. Just to sort of fill in the context of chapter 15, we need to look at chapter 14 for a minute. And at the beginning of chapter 15, Abram is actually in great need of encouragement and reassurance. Again, look over at chapter 14 for a minute. Because it's actually a strange chapter. In chapter 14, we sort of get a glimpse of Abram the warrior. And not, not sort of a, a way we often think of Abraham. Because in chapter 13, we saw that Abram's nephew, Lot, pitched his tents near Sodom. And in chapter 14, Lot gets caught up in a war that the king of Sodom is involved in. The king of Sodom is defeated along with some other kings, and then the victors in verse 11 take the spoils, and the spoils include Lot and his possessions. So Abram hears about this in verse 13, and he sets out to rescue his nephew. And Abram defeats this alliance of kings through some pretty clever tactics, and he rescues Lot. And at the end of the chapter, the king of Sodom offers Abram the plunder from his victory. He does it in a very arrogant way, and the king of Sodom, you have to remember, he was defeated in battle, but he sort of says, you know, um, verse 21, give me the people, but keep the goods for yourself, the king of Sodom says. But Abram refuses that offer. He won't take anything from the king of Sodom, verse 22 to 24. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. See, Abram, at the end of chapter 14, he, he makes a stand. 
he sort of says, my victory actually came from the Lord. And he's the one who's going to get the honour for it. And he boldly declares to the king of Sodom, he doesn't need that plunder. Because his future is secure in the hands of his God. And then we come to chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. You're a very great reward. And it's worth asking, why this message from God? And why now? Well, I want to suggest that Abram needed to hear this from God. God knew Abram needed to hear it. Just who God was and what God's purposes were for Abram. Because again, at the end of chapter 14, Abram is actually left isolated and friendless at this point in his life. He may, he's won a victory, but in a sense he doesn't have any allies in the land. He may have feared a reprisal attack, either from the kings he defeated, or equally likely the king of Sodom. And when you hear about Lot, his nephew, the very nephew he rescued, well, there's no sign of Lot at the end of chapter 14. And it's later, a few chapters later, Lot just went straight back to Sodom after being rescued by Abram. Doesn't seem to be a great deal of gratitude in Lot at this time. See, Abram, he has taken this stand for God. He said, I don't need your money, king of Sodom. But now he needs the living God to reassure him that the stand he had taken was worth it. I want to say in that, Abram, he's a lot like most Christians at certain points in our lives. Because every day of a Christian's life, they're required, they're called to make a stand. Sometimes in big dramatic ways, other times in very small but no less costly ways. Sort of examples of the big and dramatic. Um, when I was young, you were always, I was always told of the Scottish athlete Eric Little, who refused to run on a Sunday during the 1924 Olympics. It was a pretty dramatic sign that he, he was wanting to honour God. Or think about a friend of mine who resigned her job in a bank, a Christian friend, because she just became more and more uncomfortable with being urged to sell loans to people she knew couldn't afford them. She took a stand, but it meant losing her job. But obviously there's lots of low-key and less public ways we make a stand. The Christian who chooses not to join in with bitching about their boss or a colleague. And as a result, they just get labelled as a killjoy. That in some ways, that's a costly stand. Or the Christian woman who refuses to go out with the guy from work who likes her, even though she likes him because he's not a Christian. That's costly. Or the Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction, but, but puts his trust in God to keep him. And he will honour God in his life. That is costly as a stand to take. And the big question that faces every Christian anywhere when they make that stand, whatever it may be, is, is it worth it? Is it worth it making this stand for God when it just seems to cost me so much? Abram misses out on a huge bit of plunder at the end of chapter 14. He misses out on a valuable alliance at the end of chapter 14, all because he believes the king of Sodom to be wicked. That it's more honouring to God to refuse it. And Christians face those choices every day 
the choice to be ridiculed, to feel lonely, to feel like you're missing out on what the world has to offer. Is it worth it? Well, that's the message God has for Abram at the beginning of chapter 15. Yes, Abram, he wants him to know. The stand you've taken is worth it. Why? Well, because the God you've taken a stand for is faithful and he is good and he is absolutely committed to blessing his people who take a stand for him. And throughout this chapter, I want us to see that when we look at Abram, in a sense, Abram, the New Testament tells us he stands for anyone who puts their faith in God. So God's message to Abram, we can take as a message to us today. So first of all, God wants Abram to know this this unbreakable promise he makes that God will protect Abram. God will protect his people. Verse 1, do not be afraid. And I heard someone, uh, an Old Testament scholar, once in a lecture say that this is one of the most recurring phrases in the whole Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it keeps coming back as well. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He even gave me a figure, but I've always forgotten it, which I'm annoyed about. How many times that comes up in the Bible. But it is one of those recurring commands in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to God's people. Do not be afraid. Why? Because God knows that his people will often feel afraid. God's people often look so weak and unimpressive compared to the world. Again, Abram here, he is an old man. He is childless. He is, in many ways, friendless. It's totally natural for him to be afraid. But God tells him, don't be afraid because you are protected, God says. And it's me, the living God, who's protecting you. So God wants Abram to know he will protect his people. And it's worth pointing out that God's protection of his people doesn't mean they're going to live a trouble-free life. I hope you saw that. When you flick to the end of this chapter, verse 13, when God is predicting, prophesying what will happen to Abram's descendants. And the future that awaits them is that they're actually going to be slaves for 400 years in a foreign country. Belonging to God, being part of God's people, does not guarantee a trouble-free life. God's protection doesn't mean that nothing ever gets to us. But what God's protection does mean is that he will never abandon his people, even when he allows them to go through times of trial as part of his purposes for them. Again, look at verse 14. God's purposes for Abraham's descendants are good. He will take them out of that land of slavery. He will also protect them in the midst of that land of slavery. So God wants Abram to know he is committed to protecting his people. And he's also committed to blessing his people. Verse 1 again. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And again, that that phrase reward, that's so important for Abram right now. Remember, he has just turned down a huge amount of plunder from a victory he had won. It could have set him up so nicely for the future. We know Abram is doing reasonably well already, but again, he's turned this down. But Abram says, actually, you've not missed out on a reward for your faithfulness. Your reward is secure with me. 
And I actually love the way the NIV renders it. That I am your shield, I am your very great reward. That could be translated, um, your reward will be very great. But actually, ultimately, we're going to see in verse 6 that, that a huge part of that reward is a right relationship with God as righteous people. God himself is Abram's reward, is Abram's blessing. But actually, Abram is struggling to grasp that in verses 2 to 3. He's got questions to ask about this reward. Verses 2 to 3, Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So Abram's got questions about this reward. And I want to see, actually, that Abram's right to ask those questions. In contrast to the world's understanding of faith, which is just believe in spite of the evidence, actually, the Bible invites us if you're going to trust this God, you need to get to know him. I need to know exactly what it is he is promising you. It's not enough just to have a vague notion that God might be good. You should ask questions of him, as Abram does here. Because God doesn't rebuke Abram for his questions in verses 2 to 3. His response is to make this staggering promise to Abram. Verses 4 to five. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Someone pointed out to me recently that we all too easily miss the sheer scale of what God is promising Abram here because so often we live in cities. So the sky at night is always polluted for us. There is light pollution everywhere. So in a sense, when we read this, we go, as many as the stars in the sky, maybe 15? You know, that's, that's, that's quite impressive. That's a great promise from God. But actually, we need to see that Abram's looking in an unpolluted sky here and the stars are countless. If you've ever been, I know, the far reaches of the north of Scotland, or I was once in East Africa, just that sense of the sky just felt so big because there weren't lights around. And that's the sky God is pointing Abram to here. So shall your offspring be. They will be countless. They will be numerous. And we actually see, throughout Scripture, this promise being fulfilled to Abram. First in the nation of Israel, Abram's initial descendants, but then in the worldwide church throughout history, this, this countless number of those belonging to God as Abram belongs to God. It's an amazing promise of blessing God makes. Your offspring will be countless, he says. And today we actually see a glimpse of that. Revelation 7, verse 9 says that in heaven, in that new creation, there will be a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language. An amazing promise of blessing to Abram. It may be equally amazing. Abram believes it. Verse 6. 
Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Here's this man, he said in verse 2, he's childless, he is old, his wife cannot have children. God tells him you're going to have as many children as the stars in the sky. And Abram believes God. It's just an amazing sign of faith. And, and I can't actually think of a better explanation of what's going on than the one given by the Apostle Paul. If you want to keep your finger in Genesis 15, but flick forward with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, that's page 1131 in the church Bibles. Romans 4, verse 18. <clears throat> i just read a little bit here. Because again, I think, yeah, I'm not going to explain much, but I think Paul is trying to just unpack what's going on in Genesis 15, verse 6. Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed. And so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. God declares Abram righteous and God will declare his people righteous, Paul says, if they believe in Jesus our Lord, if they believe that Jesus is risen and has defeated sin and death. Abram believes God, verse 6. His silence shows he believes God. And again, that belief is rooted in the character of the God who's revealed himself to Abram. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. God sort of reassuring Abram of the grounds for trusting him. Because faith in the Lord, it's faith in his character and faith in his promises. And verse 7 kind of has both of that. It's God's character, what he has done. Verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And later in Exodus, God almost used the same wording to, to the people of Israel. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. That sense of faith in God for every believer, it's faith in what he's done. God will point to what he has done for us to reassure us. But also, it's faith in his promises, what he will do, what he hasn't yet done. The second bit of verse 7. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Abram hasn't got possession yet. But God says, just as certainly as I brought you out of Ur, I'm going to give you this land. Your descendants will have it. So faith in the Lord in the present, it's faith in God's character and what he has done, but it's also faith in God's promises, what he will do. We don't have a, an unbroken, perfect relationship with God yet, but we're looking forward to the time when Jesus returns and we will see him face to face. In the past, for the Christian, 
We look at God's dealings with his people in the pages of scripture, like Genesis 15. Supremely, we look at the cross and the resurrection. But in the future, we also look to the hope that is in store for us. Jesus returning. Jesus judging evil. Jesus bringing about a new creation. Faith in God is faith in his past goodness to us and his future goodness to us. And then verses 9 to 21. God demonstrates his commitment to bless his descendants, to bless Abram. And it's an unbreakable commitment. Again, I've said already, this is a key moment in God's dealings with Abram. It's a key moment in God's dealings with humanity. And the covenant God establishes in verses 9 to 21, it's a solemn one. And when you look at it, it's, sort of a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange scene. It's a powerful scene. Animals being cut up and laid out in the ground. A thick and dreadful darkness coming over Abram. A flaming torch that appears and passes between the animal pieces. But what does this covenant tell us about the God who calls us to trust in him? Well, this cutting up of the animals shows us that this covenant is binding. It is serious for God. Again, in, in contemporary covenants in the time of Abram, this would often happen. They would often cut up animals and the two parties would walk between the animal parts saying, if one of us breaks this covenant, then, then the same fate will meet us as met these animals. It shows just how serious the two parties are. We are walking between these dead animals saying, if I don't keep it, I should die myself. This is, this is a binding covenant God makes with Abram. But there's a difference between this covenant and the contemporary covenants we've discovered in Abram's time. And that is that Abram is completely passive here. Now you can say that we, we see Abram's faith in action when he obeys God's command to prepare the animals in verse 10. He drives away birds of prey in verse 11. So in one sense you could say he's not completely passive. But by verse 12, Abram is in a deep sleep brought about by God. He's passive. He's asleep and God alone walks between the animal pieces. God's saying, these promises I'm making, they're not dependent on you, Abram. On your performance, on your faithfulness. They are dependent on me. On my faithfulness. And that is an amazing encouragement for Abram and for everyone who follows Abram in trusting in God. Again, Daniel alluded to last week, <clears throat> Abram wasn't always faithful. You can fast forward to chapter 16 to see Abram and Sarah both being faithless, trying to take things into their own hands to produce their offspring in spite of God's promises. You see, God promises them here that no matter how faithless his people are, God will always keep his promises. And we can say with confidence in a way that Abram maybe couldn't, that God did keep his promises to Abram. God did rescue Israel from slavery. God did give them the land he promised to give them. And through them, God did bless the whole earth. Because through that land, through that nation of Israel, God's son entered the world. And also want to suggest to us tonight that when we look at Genesis 15, 
we glimpse far more of what God is doing and what God is telling Abram about himself than Abram ever did. Because when we look at this scene of God's presence passing between the animal pieces, we only actually get the real cost of God, cost to God of this faithfulness when we fast forward to see the coming of Jesus into the world. Because again, this covenant between Abraham and God would be broken again and again by Abram and his descendants. By the sinfulness of Abram's descendants. By the faithlessness of believers. But actually, God declares in this covenant, he alone will take the consequences of that faithlessness. He alone will bear the penalty for that faithlessness. And Abram didn't pass between the pieces. Only God did. And only God would take the price for the faithlessness and sin of his people. And he does that through the death of his son at the cross. So how can God declare a sinner like Abram or a sinner like us to be righteous? Well, it's because Jesus took our punishment and won our forgiveness. And why can we trust God? Why do we know that making a stand for God, a costly stand often, is worth it in this world? Well, again, we just need to see God's commitment to his people. Demonstrated here in chapter 15 of Genesis, but supremely demonstrated when he does take that penalty for us at the cross. We need to look at the cross, look at the empty tomb. God taking the punishment and then God winning our forgiveness three days later. So God wants Abram to know in chapter 15, that he's faithful. And he wants him to know that making a stand for him is worth it. And God wants us to know, if we are trusting in Jesus, that it is always worth it, whatever the cost here and now, to follow and trust in him. Because the future he has in store is glorious and he has shown his commitment to us through dying on the cross for us. Let me just finish with some words from Romans 8, verse 31 to 32, as we move into a time of remembering Jesus' death for us. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul says the gift of Jesus is the standard of God's lavishness and generosity. And along with Jesus, God will give us a glorious future with him. In a moment, we're going to take bread and wine together to remember Jesus' death on the cross for us. We're going to sing before we do that 
Um, but before we sing again, in the choir, I just want to invite you to just reflect, perhaps from Genesis 15, on the depth of God's commitment and the depth of God's faithfulness to us in the face of what we have to confess is so often our faithlessness to him. Perhaps you want to, to thank God for that faithfulness. Perhaps you want to confess faithlessness on your part in the past week. Perhaps you just want to reflect on are you trusting in this God? However costly that may be. So we'll take a few moments just to, 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 to pray in the quiet and then Charlie and Faith will lead us in a song. So let's, let's just pray in the quiet.
to God's word to Abram. Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. And the demonstration of God's commitment to protect and bless his people is at the cross where we see the glory of God again in the face of faithlessness and sin to be faithful and to overcome the sin we cannot overcome on our own. So we're going to take bread and wine together. As we do that, I'm going to read some famous words from 1 Corinthians 11. Again, this is a meal for those who trust in Jesus for their life, for their future, for their reward. And if that's not you tonight, then just let the bread and the wine pass by. But if that is you tonight, these are here to strengthen us, to reassure us if we ever doubt God's commitment to love and bless his people. We need to lift our eyes to the cross. So again, I'm just going to take a moment's quiet to reflect for a moment on God's love, God's grace demonstrated at the cross, and then I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes so we'll keep hold of the cup and drink together when everyone's received
faith in God is dependent on what he has done and what he will do. And the early Christians remember that with the phrase, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Let's drink. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your grace and your commitment to rescue people at the cost of your own life. At the cost of your place in heaven, you humbled yourself and entered this world that we might enter yours. The world you have in store for all those who trust in you. And we praise you, Lord, that all we need to enter that world, to be declared righteous by you, is to place our faith, our trust in you and you alone. And Lord, we praise you that you are a God forgives and who shows grace. Help us to trust in that, to trust in you in this coming week. So we would delight in you and so we would display something of your character to others so that we might be strong in our faith for you. We ask that for your precious name and for your glory in our lives. And we finish with a song that again reminds us because of Jesus' death that we have absolute security and assurance before God. Before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea.
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thanks be to God.